0: If you would take your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue our study of the visit of the Magi to Christ. In the evangelical church in the United States, it's become popular over the years to present the gospel in a way in which the emphasis is almost entirely on the choice between going to heaven or going to hell. In fact, when I was uh, in the youth group, I remember there was this popular play going around called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Anyone ever see that or hear about that? I did. And it was all about trying to essentially scare you into believing in Jesus. The, The thought process goes something like this. Most people if given the choice, would prefer to go to heaven rather than go to hell. And so if we can begin the gospel with with holding heaven out before them as the, the carrot on the stick, then when they say they would like to go to heaven, we can talk to them about Jesus, as if Jesus is simply the ticket, the ticket into the place that you would like to go. But the problem with that is that, biblically speaking, heaven is not the central focus of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the central focus of the gospel. To present the gospel by trying to stir a person's affections for heaven rather than Christ is is to fundamentally miss the biblical centerpiece of the gospel. When the Bible presents the gospel, it's clear that what's being presented to us is the person of Jesus Christ. Really, the gospel is the question that, that Jesus asked to his disciples when he said, who do you say that I am? That's the question that stands before us this morning. Who do we say that Jesus Christ is? The Apostle Paul speaks of his desire for eternity in this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Notice the resounding emphasis for the Apostle Paul was not so that I may gain heaven, although Paul certainly looked forward to eternity, but the emphasis is on Christ. The desire for heaven for the Christian is not heaven in and of itself. It is the king of heaven. It is Christ. In Matthew's gospel account, he's presenting Jesus to us in all his majesty. He wants us to understand fully who this Jesus is. And he's not just telling us that to give us information, but he's telling us that to call us to respond. There's a a particular response in mind as Matthew presents the Lord Jesus Christ to us in the account that we have been studying last week, and that is the response of worship. Jesus Christ is the Messiah King, and therefore he deserves our worship. And so we continue then to see that together now in Matthew chapter 2, in the account of the visit of the wise men or the magi. Now, before we dive into that, let me just briefly remind you of the context in case you weren't here with us last time. Don't forget that all of the gospel writers write their gospels with a theme in mind. And the theme of Matthew is Jesus as king. From beginning to end, he is arguing that Jesus is the king, the Messiah King. And he begins his gospel with three proofs of the fact that Jesus is king. In chapter one, verses one to seventeen, he, he proves this by showing the Messiah's royal genealogy. He has the right, he has the birthright to be king. He's he's from the line of David, as was prophesied. He proves that in the first verses of chapter one. But secondly, Matthew turns his attention to another proof and that is the Messiah's supernatural conception in the rest of chapter 1. He proves that Jesus fulfilled the promise, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. Jesus fulfills both the royal bloodline and the prophetic promise of the virgin birth and that leads Matthew then to give us a third proof, which is really a call to respond to those first two proofs, the Messiah's rightful worship. The Messiah's rightful worship, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and that's what we've been studying together. Let's read our text together, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you've found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they'd seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. As we saw last week, the resounding theme of these verses is simply this. Jesus is the Messiah King and therefore worthy of our worship. We looked at the first six verses last time and the first three scenes in this narrative. We saw an unlikely entourage In the first two verses, there's this group called the Magi coming to Jerusalem asking about the birth of the king of the Jews, they say. The Magi, as we saw, were likely from Babylonia. And they're thought to have been important religious and political figures and leaders at the time. They seem to have originated from the nation of Media, so they are Medes by heritage. And we see them mentioned several times in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, they're they're translated as magicians. Uh, That's because we get our word magic from the Greek word for magi, magus. Uh, But when you see magicians in Daniel, it's these men, this group of men of magi. And so it's very possible that these magi were familiar with the writings of Daniel. Having been in that area, Daniel had uh, been promoted to, to leader over all of the magi and the other leaders in the nations of Babylon and even in the Persian Empire to follow. So they would have been very familiar with Daniel. Perhaps they knew his writings. Perhaps that's why they were so willing to leave uh, when they saw the sign of the star and to travel the, the some uh, four-month journey to get to Jerusalem. One resource, the Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible, mentions that the Magi may even have been official uh, government officials sent out to anoint kings. That may have been one of their primary functions, uh, which makes sense then as to why God chose these Gentile men to come and to visit the Christ child. But their arrival causes a stir, as we saw in the second scene in verse 3, an unnerved king. Herod the Great is king at this time, and he's a paranoid king in the the latter uh, years of his reign. In fact, he was such a paranoid king that he murdered two of his sons and one of his wives uh, because he was suspicious that they were trying to usurp his authority, uh, that maybe creating a conspiracy to overthrow his reign. So you can imagine then when he hears rumor that supposedly a king of the Jews has been born his ears are very peaked. His intrigue is at high alert. And the scripture says he was troubled. It was troubled to the core, and Jerusalem with him. Then we saw scene number three in verses four to six an underhanded inquisition. Herod creates a plan that we don't know the plan yet, but we can tell that his mind is mulling over how to respond. And so he calls in the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, to ascertain from them where this child was prophesied to be born. And they quote to him, of course, from Micah 5, verse 2, and explain that the Christ child, the Messiah, is to be born in Bethlehem. Now, that's where we left off with the Magi last time. We'll pick up now here in verse 7 and scene number 4, a devious commission. A devious commission. Read with me again verse 7 and 8. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now, first of all, notice that he does this in secret. Then Herod secretly called the Magi. Now, it's not immediately clear in context why he does this in secret, but as we see the rest of the narrative play out and we see the the wicked and heinous murder that Herod uh, does in response to this, we understand the secrecy. He's calling them in secretly because he's developing a plan of how he's going to respond to this crisis of his rule. And specifically, when he calls the Magi in, he wants to determine from them the exact time that the star appeared. Now, we can assume the reason for that is he's trying to pinpoint how old the child is. And so he knows what kind of age child he's looking for. We're not given the answer to that question here. But because the journey would have taken, as we know, about four months to get there, Uh, if the star did, in fact, appear on the night of his birth, we don't know that, but if that's when it appeared, we can assume Jesus may be a few months old at this time, somewhere around four months old, up to two years old, because two years is the age that Herod determines when he murders the children in Bethlehem. But we can guess that Herod actually was probably giving himself a wide margin uh, in his wickedness, and so it's, it's more likely that Jesus is younger than two years, maybe four months old, somewhere in that uh, region. But he's trying to ascertain, when did the star appear? And after hearing their answer, he sends them off to Bethlehem, essentially with his good wishes. He hides his true intentions from them, and he sends them to Bethlehem. he does all that he can to make it appear that he's genuine in his request when he sends them off. And he tells them, I want you to go. And I want you to search carefully for the child. And then when you found him, I want you to report back to me. He wants to hear what they find. Perhaps he thinks it'll be less conspicuous to send them out, since they're already here to do this, rather than sending soldiers or, or his own group of investigators. He says, I'll let them do the dirty work for me. There'll be pawns in my scheme, and they'll go find out where this king is and come back and tell me. And to cover his true intentions, listen to the reason that Herod says uh, he's wanting to know this information. He says, go and report back to me so that I too may come and worship him. When we understand the true intentions of Herod's heart, and we read this through that lens, what wickedness, what hardness of heart to pretend as if he has a true desire to come and worship this king as the magi have said that's their expressed desire to come and give him worship herod says me too i want to do that this is the earliest recorded instance that we have of someone professing to love and honor jesus while secretly harboring ulterior motives in their heart and this is not the primary application of this text but it is an important application of this text and I think it's important for us to ask the question, why are we interested in Jesus? What has drawn you to Jesus this morning? You know, Herod's only real interest was to find Jesus so that he could eliminate him as a threat to his throne. And as we bring that over into our day, here in the United States, though I would say we are a a post-Christian culture at this point, there are still places, particularly in the South, in which... It can benefit you to at least claim to be a Christian. In Herod's case, his motives were pretending to honor Jesus with the intention of destroying him. And and maybe your motives are not that sinister. I would would hope not. But they could still be self-serving. It's important to ask the question, Have you chosen to go through the motions of following Jesus on the outside to appease your spouse? or to appease your parents, or to appease your boss. Pretending to worship Jesus for your own purposes is sin. It is wickedness of a hardened heart. And this is a call for us to take stock of our own selves, to take stock of our own professed affection for Christ, and to ask, am I coming to Christ for any reason other than Christ himself, to know him To love Him, to worship Him, and to believe in Him that I might be reconciled to the Father through Him. The appropriate response to Jesus is not the hard-hearted, selfish response of Herod, but it is, again, the response that we see in the Magi. And so, take the Magi as an example here, as we look at the way that they respond appropriately to Jesus as the Messiah King. That brings us to verse 9. And scene number five, a divine guide, a divine guide. Look back at verse nine. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they'd seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now, at this point in the story, we have no reason to believe that the Magi uh, didn't believe Herod. It it appears that they thought he was genuine and that at this point at least they fully intended to report back to him. They, They leave his presence and they go out to fulfill not just his commission but the one given to them by God and they make the six mile journey down to Bethlehem from Jerusalem to Bethlehem it's some six miles but as they begin to travel something truly miraculous happens. Notice it says and the star which they'd seen in the east, went on before them. Now this makes it clear that when God showed them the miraculous sign, initially when they were in their own country, it didn't stay there for the duration of their journey. The text seems to indicate that they saw some miraculous star in the sky, that clearly God somehow clearly communicated to them, that meant this child had been born, and that was enough then to set them off on their journey, And they went to Jerusalem, the capital city, to find this king because that's where they assumed they would find him. But the star did not lead them necessarily the entirety of their journey over those four months. But now, as they turn their face from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem, they again see the miraculous star that they first saw rising in the sky when they were in the east. This reminds us, by the way, that God did this on purpose. Only after spreading the word among the Jews in Jerusalem, only after the religious leaders are notified that they've seen this sign and been sent to to, to find Jesus, and only after Herod hears the reason for their coming does the star reappear to guide them to Bethlehem. That's on purpose. It's because, as we said last week, God intended for these Gentile magi who were formerly pagans who show up on the scene to worship the Messiah to be a kind of a sign and announcement to the Jewish people that their Messiah had been born. This is a reminder that God is sovereignly directing every single aspect of this story, The birth, the announcement, every detail comes from the eternal plan of God that's unfolding exactly as he intends for it to unfold. This is how the Apostle Paul describes the coming of Jesus in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, verse 4, "...but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law." That we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice that phrase in verse 4. When the fullness of the time came. That is exactly as God had planned from eternity past. At that moment the Messiah was born. And it's this moment that we're studying here in Matthew that's in view. And all of this is unfolding just as God designed. This miraculous star guiding the Magi to Jesus is divine proof that Jesus really is the Messiah King, that there is something different about this child. If it is true that the Magi uh, functioned in some official role as those who installed new kings or anointed kings, I guarantee you they've never had an anointing or installment like this. They've never had a divine miracle leading them to the place of the child as it is here. They, They are understanding now more and more that there's something more to this child and, and if you're questioning in your mind still whether or not this was a natural phenomenon this star or if it was a miracle all of that is laid to rest with the next description of this star because it says it went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was now I don't know about you but I've never seen a star do that I've seen shooting stars, I've seen lots of things in the sky that are exciting. I've never seen a star come down, guide someone to a town, and then rest over a particular house. This is not a natural event. This is a miraculous event that God has designed to show these men where Christ has been born, and more than that, to show them who this is, that this is Someone different, someone magnificent, the significance of which they've never seen before. And remember, all of this is happening to a group of Gentiles, Gentile men. The first to hear of the birth announcement in Luke chapter 2 were the Jewish shepherds, the lowest of the low in Jewish society. And now we have these Gentiles as the second group that are highlighted, that are shown and given the opportunity to see this Child, it's a reminder that God makes no distinction between persons based on their ethnicity when it comes to salvation because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Both Jew and Gentile must come and bow before this one Messiah King. He is the only hope of the entire world. And we see from the beginning God drawing the nations to come and worship him. But there's another practical reason that this supernatural sign was necessary to confirm in the minds of these magi that this, in fact, was the right child. If these men were, in fact, high-ranking political figures who were regularly in and around royalty, as we see them in the book of Daniel, for example, giving advice and coming in, interpreting dreams and things of that nature, and if they were involved in the installment of kings, They would have been very used to going into a royal palace to do this. They would have been used to the grandeur that comes with anointing or installing a king. And yet here they are being led away from the capital city where the temple was, where the palace was, out into the darkness to some rural backwater town called Bethlehem. How were they to know that this was right? I mean, of course, the Jewish leader said he was supposed to be born there, but they've been told this is a king of the Jews, so is this really the right place? Well, God confirms this is exactly the right place by leading them through the night with this miraculous star, even pointing out the exact house. Understand that there was nothing about this house, whatever, wherever it was exactly in that town, that would have drawn attention. Nobody walking by this house would have said, Oh, i bet a king is born in there. The only way that they would have known is because of this miraculous sign from God. And that's exactly what God gives them. He brings them to the specific place where Jesus was. And because this happens in a house and not in the stable, we understand that this is a separate account from the night of his birth in which the shepherds come. And so again, the Magi technically shouldn't be a part of our nativity scene, but they're welcome there. If you have them there, that's fine. This happens sometime later. But the response of the Magi to the sight of this miraculous sign is a model for us. And that's really where I want us to focus our attention now in scene number six, A Deep Joy. A deep joy. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, the wording makes it clear here that they had not previously been following following the star for the entire length of their journey to Jerusalem because they see the star, indicating they hadn't seen it previously. But the real point of interest here in verse 10 is their response when they see this miracle Again, But before we dive into the weeds of the words chosen here by Matthew, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of the Magi for just a moment. Remember, this is a real account that really happened. Take yourself there in your mind, pretend that you're there with them. You've seen a star in the heavens back in your hometown, a star of such miraculous clarity that you knew immediately that this was a, a, a promise from God that this, this Christ child had been born, the King of the Jews. It was so clear, in fact, that you pack up and you, you take off, headed for the four-month journey to Jerusalem. The entire time that you're moving towards Jerusalem, the anticipation is building. The, the, the banter's happening between the Magi as they're talking about the significance of what they're about to go and do. And so it builds and builds over that four-month time. The divine star apparently disappears, but, but it was so clear in the heavens, and, and you weren't the only one that saw it, this entire group saw it, that you're convinced we just got to keep going. We got to keep going and make our way to Jerusalem, where surely someone can tell us more about this king of the Jews. But after having made this journey and finally crossing the finish line into Jerusalem, the capital city where where all of the, the highest ranking Jews would have been, to your amazement, no one seems to know what in the world you're talking about. No one knows of a Jewish king that's been born recently. And and to make matters worse, when you tell them that you saw the miracle and you've come in response to the miracle, not even one of the Jews, including the religious leaders, is excited or interested enough to go with you to Bethlehem to see whether or not this thing is true. I mean, they seem completely uninterested. And you can see how maybe their confidence was shaken just a little bit at this moment. Maybe they're beginning to wonder, did we really see what we thought we saw? and if we, if we did did it mean what we thought it meant but after hearing now from the jewish leaders that bethlehem is where you should find such a child and you turn your face to go there the star reappears just imagine what they must have felt we're not crazy Right? We, we did see this. This, this is real, and, and not just the star, but if the star is real, then the baby is real, and that means that, that we're about to meet this king of the Jews that apparently is more than just a king if it warrants God giving us such a miraculous sign. We have the privilege of going and meeting him, and we're almost there. You can see how they're bursting with joy. And it's with that sort of emotion then that we need to reread the words. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now this description of joy over seeing the star is stated about as emphatically as written words can express. You can't add more superlatives to, to really get your point across than this. It would have been enough if he had simply said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. If you wanted to go further and really add emotion to that rejoicing, he could have said, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. But that's not where he stops either, because he says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is... This is an amount of joy that's hard to, to put in words. This is tears of laughter kind of joy. This is the kind of joy in which you temporarily lose your composure and burst out loud in some way with, without care of who's around or who is seeing you. This is watching your bride walk down the aisle kind of joy. This is holding your firstborn child kind of joy. When he says that they re- rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, this is the height of emotion that a, a human being can experience of happiness. They're overwhelmed with joy when they see the star. So don't just picture them writing down with a, a little smile on their face. No, this is, this is out loud bursts of, of excitement and joy that the star has reappeared and the baby is real and they're almost there. If you think I'm overstating the point, just go and do a, a word study this week on the phrase great joy. What you'll find is that it's exceedingly rare in the scriptures. In the Old Testament and the New, it's reserved to describe people responding to really the, the highest points in, their, in the Old Testament, in Israel's journey, in, in their history. In the New Testament, in the spread of the gospel. In the Old Testament, for example, great joy is said to be the way the people responded on the day that Solomon was anointed as king. Great joy is said to be the way that the people worshipped after resettling Jerusalem, after having been in exile. In the New Testament, great joy is said to be how the disciples respond after seeing Jesus ascend into heaven. And great joy is said to be how the people responded when Paul and Silas returned, uh, describing how the Gentiles had come to true salvation. Great joy is rare, but this is a moment of great exceeding joy. But there's one more reference in Scripture that's most significant for us here as we think about great joy in this context, and it is in the announcement from the angels to the shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And now what we see here is that all who recognize this child as the Messiah King, Jew or Gentile, experience this prophetic pronounced great joy. Great joy comes to all who come and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in recognition that he really is the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah who's come to save his people from their sins. This joyous response from the Magi was not because of the star itself, but because of the magnitude of what the star represented. Is that your response to Jesus? When you think of who Jesus is and What Jesus has accomplished by dying on the cross for your sins. And when you think of the fact that he's purchased you and adopted you into the family of God. Does that bring you great joy? The angelic pronouncement of joy is not just for the shepherds. And it's not just for the magi. It's an enduring promise for all who come and worship Jesus the King. This morning, if you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, this response of the Magi is God's call to you of how you must respond to Jesus, the Messiah King. Recognizing first your own true condition before God that you, in fact, are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God for your sins. But God, in His grace, has not left you without hope, but has sent for you His own Son in human flesh, that he might live and die in your place and rise again from the grave. And then after rising from the dead, he offered to all who would come in repentant faith to him eternal life and salvation. And since that day, all who have come to Christ, understanding who he is, have come and experienced this great joy. the invitation stands for you this morning on Christmas morning if you'll simply humble yourself in repentance and faith recognizing Jesus Christ as your king and Messiah you too will know this great joy and that joy is to lead us to give him freely the worship that he is due and it brings us now to the next response of the Magi in verse 11 And a seventh scene, a dignified meeting, a dignified meeting. Verse 11, and coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice it says, after coming into the house, so obviously they're invited into the house, the divine miraculous star has led them to the dwelling where Jesus is. We're not exactly sure here why only Mary is mentioned, but it would make sense logically that Joseph too was likely there. Mary and Joseph then uh, greet the Magi, invite them into the home. And we don't know exactly, again, how old Jesus was, but this is likely happening near the end of Herod's life, somewhere around 4 A.D. He may be a few months old. And and now imagine how the Magi must have felt having journeyed so far and these last six miles having been led by this miraculous star to come into that room and to behold with their own eyes that special child. God had already revealed to Mary and Joseph the identity of Jesus. They knew, even while Mary was pregnant, that this was the Christ child, the Messiah. And then, of course, after his birth, they have the shepherds coming in telling them of the angelic announcement. All of that's already happened. But even still, I can't imagine that a knock at the door from magi who traveled from Babylon claiming to have seen a miraculous star would not have been a shock. You think about your own life, this is, these are real people, this is a real evening that happened and there's a knock at your door and here come these important figures telling you that your child is, is a special child and God's made that clear to them with a miraculous sign, even leading them to your house by a miraculous star. Even though Mary and Joseph knew who their son was, this still must have been a moment of awe for them as well. And so just to picture the the feeling in the room that must have been there as Mary and Joseph and these magi come up and they now look together and behold Christ. The significance of that moment, what they must have felt. To understand that we're experiencing something right now that is monumental, not just for us, but for the entirety of human history. Every single person will be affected in how they respond to this one. This is the special one, the one that split history. Even today, we record history and talk about history in accordance with when Jesus came because it is the most significant thing that has ever happened or will happen. And so these magi respond in the way that they said they've been planning to respond this entire time it says when they saw him they fell to the ground and worshiped him now that that those words fell to the ground mean exactly what they say they they prostrated themselves they they laid face down before this child this is the this is the most honoring position that could be given to another individual. They, they completely make themselves vulnerable, as low as they can get, laying down before this child, and the intention here is to worship him. Now, as I told you last time, there are some commentators that want to debate about, well, did it mean worship or did it mean honor? But, but I'm sorry, after reading this and looking at the context and understanding that these men have traveled so far because of a miraculous sign, and now they've, they've been led by a star to come into this room. Now seeing the child, I think this means nothing else but legitimate, genuine worship. They understood there's something different about this child. He's not just a normal king, but he requires and deserves worship. And so they lay themselves down, face down before the king. And after some time has passed, they now give to him gifts that match his royal majesty. Understand that we're supposed to feel the irony here. The context of the entire narrative should be in the back of our minds. we were to remember the hatred of Herod and the indifference of the Jews. And now we see... True, great, joyous, humble worship from these magi who lay themselves at the feet of Jesus. They now bring out their gifts. It says, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the word treasures is literally treasure box. and So they, they must have carried some kind of treasure box with them. And they, they bring that now and present that to To Jesus and his parents and opening that treasure box they now give him three gifts that are very famous and familiar it's because of the three gifts as we said that many have assumed there were only three magi but of course we don't know that we only know that there were three gifts that were given jointly by all of them to Jesus now let's talk for a moment about these gifts there are Uh, many who would argue for specific symbolism behind each of the three gifts, and there may very well be that. We'll talk about that. But we can't be dogmatic about the exact symbolism of each gift individually. But what we can be dogmatic about is that everyone in the original uh, audience who would have read this would have understood these three gifts to be extravagant gifts that were meant for kings. It it was a customary... um, Uh, custom for the folks when they came to visit a king to bring a gift and to bring gifts that specifically matched the fact that he was royalty you didn't just bring anything when you came to visit a king and so these gifts were were hand chosen and picked to to represent the fact that this one was a special one a royal one let's look at each of these gifts the first gift of course is gold gold is valued even today it's one of the oldest precious metals and especially at this time a, a gift of gold or wearing gold jewelry and things like that would have would have been thought of with royalty it wasn't as common for for regular people to have golden objects not in any volume but gold was was thought of in connection with royalty and king so to come to a king and offer him gold was was entirely appropriate it was the most obvious gift at that time if you want to bring something of great value you're going to bring him some amount of gold but in addition to that frankincense and myrrh are also offered frankincense and myrrh both come from trees in the area of arabia and these trees are still around today you can pull up google images of them in fact frankincense and myrrh are often used in essential oils today. So the frankincense and myrrh are still used, and this, these particular kinds of trees, when you particularly when you when you cut into the bark, they exude a sap or resin that can be harvested and then used for various purposes. Both frankincense and myrrh have strong smells that are that are enjoyable that people have enjoyed for years, and because they came for specifically from Arabia. There was a limited supply of them, and so they were very, very expensive. These were costly gifts. You didn't just have a store of frankincense and myrrh in your house. So they must have brought a large quantity of both frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense, of course, is one of the prescribed uh, spices as part of the mixture for the incense recipe that was to be burned before God. And so many have thought that the gold represents the fact that Jesus is king, the frankincense, the fact that he is God. Uh, that may be true, but we can't be dogmatic about that. Myrrh, then, also was a, was a famous aromatic spice. It was used for several different things, and it was extremely valuable. It was, it was used very often as, as part of the burial ritual what, to prepare a body for burial. It was used, in fact, in Jesus' death. Nicodemus, in John nineteen thirty nine. it says, wrapped him in a mixture of myrrh and other things. Nicodemus, who had come, first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So this was an extravagant gift on the part of Nicodemus at Christ's death, and it was, uh, in God's providence, the same gift that was given to him at his birth. And so many have thought that myrrh carried the symbolism of the fact that Jesus was a baby born to die. Of course, we know that that is true. That is why he came. Whether or not the magi fully understood that in giving these three particular gifts, we can't say. But certainly, we can see this connection in scripture. What's clear is that These magi, who formerly would have been pagans, they would have been astrologers, uh, they would have been steeped in idolatry, have now come to understand that, that this king of the Jews is this special child that deserves this kind of worship and reverence. God has opened their eyes to the truth of who this child is, perhaps, as we said, influenced by the writings of Daniel. They've come now to worship the Messiah King both in, in their posture and in their gifts. And these men are a wonderful example of the sovereign grace of God. There's no reason that they had, should have had the privilege of being invited to see the King. To come and be in His presence. By all accounts, they were going about their normal business of life, living in their idolatry, in their pagan land, until God showed them the sign of the star in the heavens, and everything changed. He allowed them to behold the gift of His precious Son. Understand that that's the only reason that any of us have the privilege of knowing Christ is because salvation is a sovereign gift of God until God opens our eyes and, and draws us to understand who Christ is and the reality of our sin and our need for Christ, we can't really behold Him for who He is. Each of us is born in sin, born in darkness. That darkness is like the proverb says, Proverbs 16:9, "The way of the wicked is like darkness. He does not know over what He stumbles. That's life apart from Christ. It's living in spiritual darkness, stumbling all the time and not even knowing why your life is so chaotic and why your life is such a mess and why everything seems to crumble in your hands until we come to know Christ through the bright light of the gospel to understand that darkness is sin and that forgiveness is offered in the person of Christ You see, some will hear an account like the one we've just studied, and their response will be something like this. They'll say, well, if God could show them a miraculous sign, then surely he could show me a miraculous sign, and as soon as he shows me a miraculous sign, I'll believe. And that's what they take away from such a wonderful account. But Matthew's gospel really shows the bankruptcy of that kind of thinking. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe you a miracle. He doesn't owe you a sign. In fact, he chose in his sovereign purposes at this point in history to show this sign only to these select men for his own reasons. But that doesn't mean that he's left us without a precious divine gift because it was God himself who inspired Matthew to pick up the pen and to write these words for you and me that you hold there likely in your lap. The scriptures are your shining star leading you to Christ this morning. The Holy Spirit inspired these words and illuminates these words so that we know that they are true. This is the shining star that you and I are to believe. This is all that we need. We have everything that we need this account here in Matthew to, to understand that spiritually speaking we too ought to lay prostrate before this king of kings and offer him the worship that he is due. Don't miss the precious hope brought to us in the account of the Magi that this king, the king of kings, has come for all who will humble themselves and worship him as he deserves. This brings us to a closing final scene in verse 12. Scene number 8, a dutiful obedience. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This confirms to us that the Magi initially didn't suspect Herod's motives of being false. They, They likely were planning to go back and tell him, hey, we found the Christ child, you can come and worship him. But God understands and knows the hearts of men and he sovereignly directs them to go home by a different way in which Herod is not warned. We also understand right after this account that in verse 13, God has Mary and Joseph take Jesus to safety in Egypt. And sometime after they've traveled there, Herod begins to understand he's been tricked. Look at Matthew 2 verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now we understand why the Jews were troubled when they heard this news. They knew that Herod was irrational, that he was paranoid, I don't think anyone expected something of this magnitude. In a fit of rage, Herod is so angry that he orders this horrendous order for all the male babies, not just in Bethlehem, but the surrounding region to be murdered. And he says from two years old and under. Again, he had asked for the timing of the star. He's probably correlating that. Most believe that he said, I'm going to err on the generous side. He's probably younger than this, but just to be safe, every child that's two and under, take him out. Showing no value of human life, he's only concerned about himself. But what we're to take away from that is that God proves again that he is sovereignly in control of every event. He moves Jesus to safety. Nothing that any man does in this life can thwart the sovereign plans of God. God is just as committed to his plan of redemption today as he was then. And he's still building his church, as Jesus would say later in Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This comforts us, by the way, that while we see our world and our country running away from God, running away from the truth, God is still on his throne. The wicked dictator Herod, even with his murderous act, was not able to wipe out the redeeming plan of God, and no one will wipe it out today. The hope of the gospel that shines through Jesus Christ, shines just as brightly this morning. And it always will, because God will see to it that it does. That brings us then to respond in two particular ways that are appropriate as we think about the the, the magi and how they responded to Jesus. The first response that ought to be ours is this, rejoice over the king. Rejoice over the king. Today, Christmas Day, is to be a day of renewed rejoicing. If you're a Christian today, then don't let yourself be so distracted by the the, the commercialism and nostalgia that comes with this holiday for us we forget that this is to be a day of rejoicing over the greatest gift that God has ever given to us, the person of Jesus Christ. That is why our countenance should be lifted. That's why we celebrate. It's to celebrate this precious one. So today on your own as an individual, with your family, with those that God gives you opportunity to interact with, take today as a day of rejoicing. Speak of the joy that has come to you because you know the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to be the reason we rejoice on this precious day and every day. But secondly... Not only ought we to rejoice as they rejoice, but we ought to bow before the king. Bow before the king. Our rejoicing, as we saw last week, ought to lead to genuine worship. May we reject the temptation to, to sinfully have any ulterior motive in our reasons for coming to Jesus. May we come to Jesus simply for Jesus because we understand who he is and what he has done. And out of our love for him, May we come and worship, recognizing he is king, recognizing he is God, recognizing that he rightly is Lord. It's a call for us not to be lax in our devotion, not to grow weary in our devotion to Christ. And may we come to him giving gifts, but not gifts of gold and and spices, but may we give to him our very lives, our very selves. May we live for him, the king, the messiah. May we serve him with everything that he's given to us until he brings us home. Those are the truths that we ought to take away. May we learn from these Gentile magi who came so willingly and so freely with such joy to worship the king. May that be reflected in how we respond to Christ this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you in our hearts, recognizing that you are the King of Kings, the great Messiah, long promised, long awaited, and rightly so. We freely offer to you the worship and honor that you are due. And we do it with gratitude, overwhelming gratitude, that you would sovereignly give your grace to us and your Son. We recognize there's nothing within us that ought to draw you to us. And yet, in your kindness, you've saved us by the blood of your own precious Son. Thank you for your great mercy and love and how you've expressed it to us so richly in the person of Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.